Well, we are continuing now in our study of the book of Acts. And uh, this week, we are going to take on the whole chapter of chapter 20. So I hope you brought lunch. We're going to be here a while. Um, no, I'm, I'm, we are going to take all of chapter 20. Uh, but uh, this is one of those interesting passages in the scriptures. Uh, really, the first half of chapter 20 is a travel log. We just get a sense here of, of some context. Uh, Luke, as he's writing this, simply is just kind of giving us a little blow by blow of where they went and how they went and uh, until we kind of get to the meat of chapter 20. Uh, and so this, is, this, this chapter really is, is kind of the long goodbye. Uh, we are reaching a turning point now in the book of Acts and in the ministry of, of Paul. He has now set his sights on Jerusalem. And uh, similarly to Jesus, who when he set his sights on Jerusalem, he knew uh, that his days were numbered. He knew that things were coming to an end. And uh, it's very similar to Paul. Paul knows that when he goes to Jerusalem this time, it's not going to go well for him. The Spirit has made that clear. He's not exactly sure what's going to happen, but he knows that it's not going to go well. And, uh, and so we, we, get a, we get a very clear sense of this here in Acts chapter 20. And what's interesting, I think, is that we get this very long speech that Paul makes, one of his longest speeches in the entire book that he makes to the Ephesian elders as he says goodbye to them. And uh, so we get a sense of the things that are most important to Paul's heart. And I think it leads us, I think it leads, should lead us to question, are these the things that are important to us as well? So uh, would you take a look here in Acts chapter 20, and I'm going to read from the message and so that's why you have it uh, as an insert in your bulletin, because if you were to read it out of the Pew Bible along with me, you'll think, wow, there's a lot of extra words that Dan's reading. What's going on? Uh, it's just, when you're reading something long, the message just flows a lot more than the NIV or the NRSV or the NASB or pick your alphabet soup. Um, so uh, Acts chapter 20. So with things back to normal, this is, of course, after what took place uh, you know, in, in Ephesus with the whole Artemis thing going on uh, from last week, if you recall, where the whole world kind of exploded because business got interrupted. Um, with things back to normal, Paul called the disciples together and encouraged them to keep up the good work in Ephesus. Then, saying his goodbyes, he left for Macedonia. Traveling through the country, passing from one gathering to another, he gave constant encouragement, lifting their spirits and charging them with fresh hope. Then he came to Greece and stayed on for three months. Just as he was about to sail for Syria, the Jews cooked up a plot against him, so he went the other way by land back through Macedonia and gave them the slip. His companions for the journey were Sopater, son of Pyrrhus from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus, both Thessalonians, Gaius from Derb, Timothy, and the two from Western Asia, Tychicus and Trophimus. 
You know, if you don't like somebody, this is the passage you have them read for you if you're a pastor. So if a pastor's ever asked you to read this, it means they didn't like you, okay? Um, Notice I'm reading it, so I love all of you. Just remember, just remember that. They went on ahead and waited for us in Troas. Meanwhile, we stayed in Philippi for Passover week and then set sail. Within five days, we were again in Troas and stayed a week. We met on Sunday to worship and celebrate the Master's Supper. Paul addressed the congregation. Our plan was to leave first thing in the morning, but Paul talked on way past midnight. And you thought my sermons were long. We were meeting in a well-lighted upper room. A young man named Eutychus was sitting in an open window as Paul went on and on. Eutychus fell fell sound asleep and toppled out the third-story window. When they picked him up, he was dead. Paul killed a guy from his preaching. How's that? Again, just remember how blessed you are, all right? Um, Paul went down, stretched himself on him, and hugged him hard. No more crying, he said. There's life in him yet. This feels like something out of the princess bride. Um, still, he's only mostly dead. This is kind of what's going on here. Um, then Paul got up and served the master's supper and went on telling stories of the faith until dawn. On that night, they left. On that note, they left. Paul going one way, the congregation another. Well, no doubt the congregation's going a different way after that worship service leading the boy off alive and full of life themselves. In the meantime, the rest of us had gone on ahead to the ship and sailed for Assos, where we planned to pick up Paul. Paul wanted to walk there, and so had made these arrangements earlier. Things went according to plan. We met him in Assos and took him on board and sailed to Mytilene. The next day, we put in opposite Chios, Samos, a day later, and then Miletus. Paul had decided to bypass Ephesus so that he wouldn't be held up in Asia province. He was in a hurry to get to Jerusalem in time for the Feast of Pentecost, if at all possible. From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus for the leaders of the congregation. When they arrived, he said, and now we really get to it. You know that from day one of my arrival in Asia, I was with you, totally laying my life on the line, serving the master no matter what putting up with no end of scheming by Jews who wanted to do me in. I didn't skimp or trim in any way. Every truth and encouragement that could have made a difference to you, you got. I taught you out in public, and I taught you in your homes, urging Jews and Greeks alike to a radical life change before God in an equally radical trust in our Master Jesus. But there is another urgency before me now. I feel compelled to go to Jerusalem. I'm completely in the dark about what will happen when I get there. I do know that it won't be any picnic, for the Holy Spirit has let me know repeatedly and clearly that there are hard times and imprisonment ahead. But that matters little. What matters most to me is to finish what God started, the job the Master Jesus gave me of letting everyone I meet know all about this incredibly extravagant generosity of God. And so this is goodbye. You're not going to see me again nor I you, you whom the news of God's inaugurated kingdom, you whom I have gone among for so long proclaiming the news of God's inaugurated kingdom. I've done my best for you, given you my all, held back nothing of God's will for you. Now it's up to you. Be on your toes, both for yourselves and your congregation of sheep. 
The Holy Spirit has put you in charge of these people, God's people they are, to guard and protect them. God himself thought they were worth dying for. I know that as soon as I'm gone, vicious wolves are going to show up and rip into this flock. Men from your very own ranks twisting words so as to seduce disciples into following them instead of Jesus. So stay awake and keep up your guard. Remember those three years I kept at it with you, never letting up, pouring my heart out with you one after another. Now I'm turning you over to God, our marvelous God, whose gracious word can make you into what he wants you to be and give you everything you could possibly need in this community of holy friends. I've never, as you so well know, had any taste for wealth or fashion. With these bare hands, I took care of my own basic needs and those who worked with me. In everything I've done, I've demonstrated to you how necessary it is to work on behalf of the weak and not exploit them. You'll not likely go wrong here if you keep remembering that our master said, you're far happier giving than getting. Then Paul went down on his knees, all of them kneeling with him and prayed. And then a river of tears. Much clinging to Paul, not wanting to let him go, they knew they would never see him again. He had told them quite plainly, the pain cut deep. Then bravely, they walked him down to the ship. This is God's word. Did you imagine the scene? This, this pastor and his elders, these people whom he has poured out his life for. And he looks at them and says, I will never see you again, nor you me. And they pray, and they walk him to the ship. And then the credits roll. Right? I mean, the music would have swelled. This, this scene is beautiful. What a beautiful picture. You know, we, we, we sometimes think of Paul as kind of a firebrand or some sort of just kind of intellectual uh, cold fish. Right? The guy who preaches so long and boring that a guy falls asleep and falls out of a third story window. Right? But nah. Paul was a guy who was warm and kind and was beloved by those whom he ministered to. The pain cut deep with much tears. They, they hugged him, they prayed for him, and then they sent him on his way. This, uh, this is one of those scenes that just, whew, you know, it, it's, it's beautiful. This is what the gospel brings. It brings a depth of community and relationship between people. And what I love about this is that we get, we get this sense here of what is most important to Paul, right? We, these are, I mean, in a very real sense, these are last words. Paul was healthy. He was strong. He was of clear mind, of clear spirit. This is not some guy on his deathbed that's rambling. No, this is a guy who had thought very clearly about what he wanted to communicate to his beloved friends to say goodbye to, knowing he would never see them again. What, what words would he leave them? Well, he left them first 
I think, which is important, is this, you know, he says, um, you know, what matters most to me is to finish what God started. The job the Master Jesus gave me of letting everyone I meet know all about this incredibly extravagant generosity of God. That this was of most importance. That everyone I meet heard about the incredible, extravagant generosity of God. That's it, right? I mean, if we could do one thing, could you imagine if that is the thing that, that when you die, when, when we are standing before your casket, we are standing in your, in your, at your funeral, or your memorial, and every person came up and said, you know what? The one thing that was so amazing about them was that they demonstrated and communicated the extravagant generosity of God. Oh, would I, I wish, I wish that is what people would say about me. I wish, I hope, and pray that that is the thing that I am most remembered for. And I pray and I hope and I wish that is the thing that you will be most remembered for. Because Paul says, this is of uttermost importance. This, this this apostle to the Gentiles, this guy who writes two-thirds of the new what becomes the New Testament, this great mind, this great missionary, says the most important thing is that we communicate to everyone we meet the extravagant generosity of our God. It's another way of talking about grace that we would demonstrate, show, communicate the great, overwhelming grace of Christ. If somebody looks at your life, what are they seeing? What kind of God are you following? Are you following a God of rules? Are you following a God of beliefs, of good doctrines? Are you following a God of, you know, just kind of, you know, platitudes? Let go, let God. What kind of God are you following? It's interesting. I was uh, listening to a podcast this week, and they were talking and they're interviewing the author of a book called the a book called the great dechurching uh there's been uh since the uh, since 2020 uh there's been a massive dechurching that has taken place across america of of all religions not just you know evangelicals not just christians but of all religions it's it's fascinating um and do you know do you know what they found was the biggest reason for people becoming dechurched? You might think it's church scandals, right? You might think it's really immoral leaders. Or maybe, you know, 
the, a lot of the racism that we see in a lot of, you know, churches. Or maybe it's because of, you know, issues surrounding homosexuality or some of those kinds of things. Nope. All, all things that people said, but all, percentage-wise, very small. The number one reason in an overwhelming landslide majority victory for why there has been a great de-churching in America is because people just got out of the habit. During the pandemic, couldn't meet. Other things just kind of started being easier. Sleeping in, getting coffee, hanging out. They just stopped going. It was just, uh, it just stopped. And you know why you can just stop? Because the God that you're following is not the extravagant, generous, gracious God. If we are following and worshiping this extravagant, generous, gracious God, then do, do, why would we not want to come into his presence and come with his people and celebrate and worship this amazing, generous, extravagant God? No, we, we, have, we have so domesticated the God of the Scriptures that, that, he, that the God of the Scriptures just simply isn't worth worshiping anymore. My really good cup of coffee and NFL pregame is way more intriguing to me and way more satisfying because we have domesticated the God of the Bible down to just a, a slot machine or a genie or, or just something that we kind of do because, well, I've always done it. You know, mom's always done it. Dad took me. Grandma took me. I don't know. Whatever. I'm done. It's not, well, it's not malicious. It's not because I, don't, I no longer believe. I, I, yeah, I believe in God. Sure. I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. You believe Jesus died for your sins? Oh, yeah, Jesus died for my sins. I believe it. We don't have any idea of the ramifications of that. We haven't thought it. We have, we have so lost the plot. We have so lost this idea of the incredibly extravagant, generous God. We're so separated from that. He's not, he's not an extravagant, generous God. No, he's just judgmental and kind of mean. He hates all the people I hate. He likes all the people I like. He's just something I leverage to get votes or I, or I try to get people to align to my way of thinking about you know, some political thing. Not, not the incredibly extravagant, generous God that draws people together the way that we see here in Acts chapter 20. 
This, this kind of love of God and living life and proclaiming God to one another, you know, in homes and in public and all over the place. And it, it becomes a part of everything that we are. We've lost that. We've lost it. I think this is what Paul says, this is the most important thing. This, this is the most important thing. We need to keep and constantly remind one another who our God is. He's not just some judgmental rule keeper. He's not just somebody who cares about if we believe the right thing or not. No, he is an extra, he is an incredibly extravagant, generous God. That is who he is. Do, do, do we believe that? Do we, do we live that out? Is that, is that even close to being real in our, in our minds and in our hearts and in our lives? Do we live that way at all? Or we just imagine God sitting up in heaven with his big white beard, you know, legs crossed, with kind of a, a mostly disappointed look on his face. And then we kind of look back at him and think, yeah, be disappointed in us. Look at the world. It's a mess. Why haven't you fixed it? We kind of look back disappointed at him. Until we stop just for a moment and consider this, the extravagant generosities in our lives. It is, is it not amazing that Paul says, you know, uh, be on your toes, both for yourselves and your congregation of sheep. The Holy Spirit has put you in charge of these people, God's people they are, to guard and protect them. God himself thought they were worth dying for. What an extravagantly generous thing that God thinks we are worth dying for. God's people he thinks are worth dying for. I had, a, I had a long argument one time with somebody who was adamant and says, no, I, we are not worthy. The Scriptures say otherwise. You are worthy. God in His generosity has declared it so and has demonstrated it so by His death and His resurrection. What a remarkable thing! We know how messed up we are. We know how broken we are. We know how imperfect we are. We know how often we fall short. We don't need to be convinced of any of that. What we need to be convinced of is that, no, you are indeed worthy of God's love and His grace and His mercy. This extravagantly generous God looks at you and says, you are worthy of all of it. You're worthy of all of it. Remarkable. Do we believe it? Do you? When you look in the mirror, do you look at the person looking back at you, and can you honestly and authentically look at that person that looks back at you in the mirror and say, you are worthy of God dying for you? Because that is what this extravagantly generous God is saying. 
Paul makes it clear. Unequivocal. Unequivocal. So, here's my encouragement. Here's my encouragement for us. We, we need to kind of follow along in the footsteps of Paul, right? He said, I proclaim the truth to you in your homes and in the gatherings. And wherever we went, I proclaimed the truth to you. What truth was he proclaiming? He was proclaiming the generous, extravagantly generous God to them over and over and over and over again. And so what is our responsibility now? Is to preach this same gospel, this same good news, one to another, all over the place, whenever we get together. When you get together in the coffee shop, when you go out to get lunch together, when you see one another here on Sundays, we need to preach this gospel to one another. We need to look at one another and say, you're worthy. You're worthy of God dying for you. You are worthy of this because our God is an extravagantly generous God. He is not stingy with His grace. He is not stingy with His mercy. He is so extravagant with His grace and His mercy and His love that He says, you, even you, are worthy to die for. We need to remind one another of that because we as His people need to be able to look in the mirror and say, you're worthy of God dying for you because of the extravagantly generous God whom we follow. So I challenge you, I challenge you this week to look around this room, to just look around this room and to... to, Figure out a couple, three people that you are going to intentionally speak this life and truth to this week. Maybe you're going to take advantage of being together right here after the service and speak life to them, to to remind them, somebody here, of God's extravagant generosity towards them. Or maybe you're going to kind of, you know, be a little sneaky and, and wait and maybe send something on a Tuesday. A random Thursday or Friday. Say, hey, just want to remind you, you're worthy. You're worthy of God dying for you because of his just extravagant generosity. So I want you to look around and I want you to pick a couple, three people. And I want you to reach out to them this week. And I want you to encourage them and remind them of this truth. Because how fun will it be on a random, just some random moment? To get a text or a phone call, somebody saying, Hey, just want to remind you, just want to remind you, you're worthy of God dying for you because of his extravagant generosity. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for time to worship. We thank you that you are the generous, the extravagantly generous God who looks at us, even us, says, yeah, they're worth dying for. Oh, God, would you you remind us of that truth? And would you draw us close by your extravagant grace, your extravagant love, your extravagant mercy? Because you are the extravagantly generous God. We pray all of this. In Jesus' name, amen.